Did you know the Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. The FT. Hello and welcome back to the FT's Energy Weekly podcast with me, Ed Crooks. I'm joined today by the FT's commodities correspondent, Javier Blas. A lot been going on in the world of energy this week. We'll be talking about the latest, of course, on the BP oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico and the start of US inquiries into that terrible accident. We'll be talking about the outlook for oil prices and oil demand uh, and the way that the spill in the Gulf of Mexico might affect that. We'll be talking about new energy legislation coming forward in the United States, and we'll be turning from the Gulf of Mexico to the Persian Gulf and looking at what might be happening to Iran and Iranian exports of crude oil and indeed imports of gasoline as well, and the way that could be affecting the Iranian economy. So, Javier, perhaps to to start it off, we just think about the BP spill, the Deepwater Horizon accident. Now we're into uh, the third week, and now we're getting into that position of uh, the inquiries starting, people picking over over the details, we've had the rather unidentifying spectacle of the leading executives from BP, uh, of course, the company that owned the well and was, was operating the, the area where the well was being drilled, Transocean, which was the company that owned the rig, and Halliburton, the company that uh, cemented the well in place and was meant to be making it secure. Executives from those three companies have been essentially trying to pass the buck and pinning blame on each other. Whatever is eventually found out about the cause of the accident, I thought one of the uh, really interesting points that came out of the hearings in the Senate, uh, the really interesting point was this, uh, uh, the, the political suspicion now and concern about the oil industry and extreme concern about offshore drilling in general, and particularly about the expansion in offshore drilling, which had been proposed by President Barack Obama uh, only a couple of months back. Uh, it looks as though the whole effort to expand offshore drilling is going to be rolled back. What's that going to mean then, do you think, for for oil supply? Are we going to see that being a serious problem in terms of world oil markets and and the kind of the availability of crude in the future? Well, it's it's all just coming around right now and we don't know what kind of legislation we have in the future. But if uh, the US was moving ahead and just ban for good all uh, offshore drilling, well, it changed dramatically the equation of supply and demand balances for the U.S. and for the world uh, just in the next uh, 20 years. I mean, uh, right now we have the latest projections of the Department of Energy of the United States saying that U.S. production is going to increase from about 5 million barrels a day to some, some somewhere beyond 6. And all of that extra oil in the next 20 years was supposedly coming from the Gulf of Mexico and all of that from deep water offshore drilling. That is precisely where a BP Transocean uh, uh, rig has this terrible accident. Right. So, so that was really, that was going to be reversing that long-running decline in U.S. domestic oil production. Exactly. That we've had because back for the, past, the, the oil, the, the traditional areas of the United States, I mean, like the Texas, California, Oklahoma, have been just declining for years. And, and it's going to be reversed. Just, and also Alaska, where the production has been declining for the last 10, 15 years. And all of that was going to be reversed. But I big increase in production from the Gulf of Mexico. Some of that increase is going to happen in any way because the wells are already
already there and the projects are almost finished and some of them they are about to to start in production but if we stop now drilling uh, obviously that's going to have an impact and also it could mean just uh, people think sometimes that you drill an, an oil field and that's it you don't need to do extra drilling in an oil field you need to do drilling every year so a lot of these new projects that they are coming on the stream it is a ban on drilling they will drop very 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 quickly and then we will not have the extra oil that was supposedly coming on the stream in the next 20 years and this is a concern that the international energy agency also the paris-based energy watchdog they've been raising a concern about what that'll mean already in just in something they put out today right exactly i mean the, the, the iea is very concerned that first we have a legislation on a reaction to an accident and of course they said this is but this has happened is terrible security and safety have to be increased but what the iea is making the point is if it's not on the gulf of mexico then where? And one of the things that has been happening on the oil industry over the last few years is that we are almost running out of, of, of qualificatives just to, to say where we are. I mean, first was deep water, then it was very deep water, ultra deep water. I don't know where the oil companies are going to go. And if not on the Gulf of Mexico, there are not so many places that the oil companies are going to be running. Well, and certainly not that are safer and more reliable as sources of oil. Where else would the oil come from? From Brazil? From Russia? Where, I mean, Well, the, the places that we are looking is uh, Brazil and, and Angola, but we are talking about very, very, very deep water. I mean, that's just... The Gulf of Mexico is just kindergarten activity compared to some of the projects in Angola and particularly compared to some of the projects in, in Brazil. I mean, some of the platforms in Brazil are so offshore that they are beyond the reach of the helicopters. So there is an accident. The helicopters cannot fly into the platforms. They need a vessel in between, land on the vessel, get extra fuel, and fly again to the to the offshore drill. We are talking about really offshore drilling and uh, extremely deep waters. And then we have to go to you know very extreme, extremely dangerous countries uh, in in the Middle East, uh, Iraq and Iran. Yeah. <laughs> Indeed, Iran of all places. I mean, that that's surely something that is going to be completely unacceptable to U.S. political opinion if they're going to be importing more oil from Iran. Well, if they are not importing more of oil from Iran because U.S. companies are banned by 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 uh, Congress. To to, to buy from Iran. But obviously there, someone is going to have to buy the oil from Iran to free oil for the United, yeah. United States. So yeah, I mean in, in a sense, if you are not drilling at home and you are not saving oil, the oil is going to be coming from somewhere. And, and with one of the, another one of those great ironies of timing, we've had this bill also published today from the Senators uh, Joe Lieberman and John Kerry uh, which is a climate and energy bill. And one of the sections here says uh, the title is Decreasing Our Dependence on Foreign Oil and they make a lot of those noises about the things that the US t- could do to cut its oil imports. Uh, but of course they have to include a paragraph because of the Times being what they are, where they say, mindful of the accident in the Gulf, we institute important new protections for coastal states by allowing them to opt out of drilling up to 75 miles from their shores. So, Well, that's the, the, the most safe, safer area for the oil companies to go. I mean, yeah. you move more than 75 miles offshore, you are getting into very deep waters, and we know what happens when you are in very deep waters. So this bill, I mean, it also talks about fuel efficiency, uh, tax incentives for conversion to using natural gas instead of petrol. They talk about investment in uh, advanced materials and technologies for for battery-powered cars, for electric vehicles and so on. And they talk about trying to do more to improve the highway system in order to save fuel that way. So there are things you can do. All all very good. But the main problem is that we are talking here again about breaking the U.S. addiction of dependency from foreign oil. I mean, we have been hearing this since the years of Jimmy Carter as president of the United States. And of course, this is not happening because 
for breaking that kind of addiction, you need to consume less. I mean, the United States doesn't have a lot of oil these days. You want to reduce your dependency, you need to save a lot of oil. At the end of the day, that's just more taxation on gasoline, coming back to the European style of high taxes on diesel and, and, and gasoline. Not something that is going to be very popular in Congress and probably not something that we are going to see in any of the proposals of the of the legislation. We have seen Jamie Carter talk about breaking the dependency and, and, and the last president, George W. Bush, was also talking about that. It is not happening. Indeed. In fact, as we were discussing last week, ultimately, it does seem to be economic incentives. Its price is the only really, really effective mechanism. I mean, it's quite interesting. Again, one of the provisions that they've got in this bill, they have a cap and trade system for uh, carbon emissions. They talk about having a kind of a a maximum price of $25 per tonne of CO2, minimum price of $12. But they also talk about including transport fuels in some kind of cap. They say emissions from the transportation sector will remain under the carbon pollution cap and producers and importers of refined products will not participate in the carbon market but will purchase allowances at a fixed price from the allowance auction. In other words, if you are a refiner or an importer of fuels into the US, you will have to pay some set amount to reflect the carbon content of those fuels, which will increase the price of it, and that would push up the price of petrol and diesel fuel sold in the United States. That would be a very significant move to push the economy, the US economy, in that direction. If, as you say, it happens, and that I'm sure is going to be one of the most controversial provisions of the I whole I think bill. that that's a big if, and I think that that's going to just face huge opposition in, both in, in Senate and, and on the House. We have seen in the past efforts to bring gasoline prices in the United States closer to the European and the Japanese levels. So far, has not happened. Maybe a way is just to justify those taxation through a green tax or a carbon tax. But of course, again, just another thing that's made the whole political climate for this very difficult is that the kind of the grand bargain that a lot of people saw was a linkage between an expansion of offshore drilling which would have pleased the republicans with some of these measures like this effectively uh, carbon tax on fuels like a cap and trade system for carbon emissions and so on that would have pleased the democrats and you could have got enough votes to get this through congress whether now it'll be possible to put that coalition together I, I it really would be doubt. very very difficult and, and very no, difficult. no Republican is going to push now for expansion of, of offshore drilling in the Gulf of Mexico not at least immediately so this grand bargain that Obama and his advisors were working on it just suddenly collapsed so uh, for the Democrats it's going to be more difficult to convince any members of the Republican Party in the Congress just to vote for carbon trade and, and carbon legislation Now shift to focus from uh, the Gulf of Mexico to the Persian Gulf some very interesting developments in the Iranian oil market. Again, we were just touching on the question of whether Iran could be a supplier of oil, as you say, a supplier of oil not directly to the US, but to world markets in a way that helps the US by freeing up oil from Saudi Arabia or or Iraq or wherever else uh, to go to the United States. But there seems to be some some problem, some hitch in, in, in Iranian exports. Something amazing is happening right now in the in the Persian Gulf, and we have lots of oil in the water. Thank God, it's in tankers. We have about twenty crude tankers, crude oil tankers, uh, with about forty between thirty eight and forty million barrels of oil. That's about enough to supply for a month uh, a country such as Italy. And or, or the United States for a couple of days. Exactly. That's just a, a sense of the difference of, of magnitude <laughs> yeah. we are talking here. But 
Iran appears to have huge difficulties selling his crude oil right now. And the question here that the traders in London, Geneva, Houston, Singapore are debating is, is Iran having a problem selling the oil because refinery maintenance, because uh, the, the market right now is at a low point, and also because the crude oil that Iran produces is a low quality, it's called heavy and sour, and then you need a very particular sophisticated refinery to use it, and when those refineries are just doing their, their spring maintenance, the, the demand usually drops. Or is that some countries have decided that they are not buying crude oil from Iran because they don't like what the country is doing with his nuclear program? And yet we don't know. But the traders I'm speaking, they were thinking until very recently, well, probably is the demand is not there. Uh, refinery maintenance were, sell were telling me. Yesterday I spoke with a very senior oil trader and said, well, now it's looking more like if the Iranians could have some of a problem with some customers not very happy with dealing with the country. Surely at the right price, though, there's always someone somewhere in the world that will buy your oil. Of course, but we are not in the situation of 2008 when we were running out of oil and everyone was just willing to get whatever oil from whatever, whichever country, almost whatever the price. Today, there is plenty of oil and also there is a lot of spare capacity in some of the competitors of Iran, including fellow OPEC members. I mean, Saudi Arabia could replace a lot of the Iranian oil as can Kuwait and, and the Emirates. We have seen Iran running into problems selling his oil in the past, but this time it seems a kind of a bigger problem and it's just lasting more. So a sign that sanctions, US-led pressure really is beginning to bite on Iran? Is this going to create a problem for the Iranian government? Uh, if this continues and, and, and finally we get a sense that indeed it's just that the Iranians are unable to sell the, the oil, of course it will be a problem for, for, for Tehran. And I think that the United States has been working behind the, uh, in the backdrop, has been working very hard to lobby countries such as Japan, South Korea and even China, both three countries' top lifters of, of Iranian crude oil, as some European countries Italy, France and Spain are also big lifters of, of Iranian oil. And it appears that maybe that kind of off-the-record background talks, diplomatic messages are beginning to work. We have seen that working. We don't need legislation for, for things to happen. We have seen it also on the gasoline sector in Iran. Well, I was going to say, because there's also then pressure which is clearly building in the United States uh, over companies selling to Iran as well as buying from Iran. Well, that's one of the funny things about Iran. They, they're one of the largest producers of crude oil in the world. However, they have poor refinery system and they are short of gasoline. So they need, even they are exporting large amount of crude oil, they need to import every month about 40% of the requirements of, of gasoline. And they were getting it through uh, international oil companies and international oil trading houses. Over the last few months, some of the big oil companies, including BP and Shell, they have stopped selling. But more importantly, since the beginning of 2010, uh, the end of 2009, but particularly the beginning of this year, international oil traders such as Glencore, Beetle and Trafigura, that they were providing most of the gasoline, have also Stop. So now Iran is really struggling to find gasoline into the market, and that all happening without any legislation being in place, just because the U.S. is discussing this legislation and because, obviously, the White House has been lobbying very, very heavily overseas to other countries and to other companies to just convince them to stop dealing with Iran. 
So perhaps a quiet success for U.S. foreign policy there. They really it is a quiet success from, from the U.S. And I think it says a lot about the strategy that uh, Hillary Clinton has been following in the, the State Department. She has been just insisting that there is no need to rush into legislation in the U.S. Congress, that just talking to the to allies. And at the end of the day, the headquarters of all these companies that we are talking about are all in Europe. And although they are private companies, still government could have a lot of power over them and quietly tell them, look, it may be a good idea if you stop dealing with this particular country. It's not going to kill the business model of any of these companies. And also, you know, they're going to be looking rather nice on the eyes of the White House and the State Department. Thank you very much indeed. So I guess the conclusion there is that it is a very big problem for you if your energy supplies are restricted in any way. Every country has an interest in protecting and defending its own supplies. And although it's a global market, although oil in particular is a hugely liquid market where everyone trades with everyone all over the world, still securing those supplies of your own, securing your own domestic supply is very, very important indeed if you can manage it. And that'll certainly be something for the United States to bear in mind when they're coming to their conclusions, making their decisions about how they respond and react to that terrible accident in the Gulf of Mexico. So, thank you very much, Javier. Thanks a lot for coming along. Uh, Thank you very much indeed for listening. This was the FT's Energy Weekly podcast produced by LJ Filatrani. Till next week, thank you very much. Goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc.